So we had an overemphasis of this one kind of rhetoric, this one kind of teaching in our tradition. And bringing in Aristotle helps us to balance that, it helps us say, okay, there are larger concepts of some of those things need to fit inside. And when you have both sets, you can usually make sense of it. When you have just one set, you tend to swerve. And then basically the categories. Uh, so that's that's the huge thing is the, the, the Aristotle sense of the categories, that there are sets of relationships and we have to be asking the right question to get the right answer. We can't just kind of willy nilly propose things and hope that there's exactly one universal logic through which these are all going to make, make sense in the same way. And so so that systematic nature in Aristotle that, that makes him perhaps not always as thrilling to read as Plato? Oh, he's nowhere near as thrilling. Yeah. Plato, Plato's a lot more, I mean, Plato's a lot more fun. Aristotle's going to explain a lot more. <laughs> um, Plato's definitely going to take you out to buy, you know, neon raspberry socks. And Aristotle's going to alphabetize your sock drawer. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, following that, then, um, you know, the... the Thomas's Aristotelianism mm-hmm. is often juxtaposed to to the Platonism of his one of his great predecessors, Augustine. Right? Mm-hmm. I think Chesterton sure. says something about a, a Augustine being a pure Platonist, um, and so you know that that's a, an, a a clear contrast. But surely there are also some commonalities between these two thinkers, right? And and presumably those could go beyond just being orthodox Nicene Christians. So what do these two great philosophers have in common? Well, I, honestly, once you, um, once you start reading Augustine through Aquinas, the answer is almost everything. Meaning, I mean, Aquinas, almost every time that Augustine comes up in controversy in Aquinas's thought, Aquinas is going to agree with Augustine. Now, once in a while, though, he sets up parameters for that agreement. So he'll say, this is what Augustine means. And in his conversation, that makes sense. But we're having this other conversation here. So he does, he does, he does diverge from Augustine. But it's usually, at least as you read it through Aquinas, uh, it's, it's that Thomas doesn't see Augustine having exactly the same, answering the same question. And I think it makes sense. With, um, with, Aug- with Augustine, you have, he is a trained uh, Neoplatonic rhetor. That is his background. He is from the Neoplatonic tradition. And I disagree with Chesterton because I would say that a Neoplatonist is by definition not a pure Platonist. Neoplatonic rhetoric reinvented the history of the Greeks to suit a certain uh, moment of trying to create this new ideal. It's an invention of the uh, about the 400s, and it lasts till about the middle of the 500s when Justin Justinian defunds the Neoplatonic Academy. <laughs> so, um, so it's this brief moment, but it's very influential for medieval thought. Um, the thing that Augustine and Thomas have in common is virtually everything about Christianity itself. I mean, they, they, they really do. They, they have the same, the same ideas of authority, the same sense of how the scriptures fit into the tradition. They have the same sense of how they, uh, the sacraments and the other ordinances of the church work. They have all of these specific things that are concretely Christian. Philosophically, Augustine, his rhetoric is always Neoplatonic. Whether he's agreeing with his training or pushing off against it, he still speaks in terms of it. So when we read Augustine, like in his On Christian Doctrine, we often have to kind of go, okay, so he mentioned four things, but then he only ever talks about two of them because that's the point he's trying to focus on. And in his school of rhetoric, which is a very verbal, very oral rhetoric, uh, he has to do that just like a teacher has to simplify things in the classroom, even though he knows there's two more things we need to discuss 
in another semester. <laughs> okay, And so Augustine does a lot of that, and Aquinas tends to be more systematic, as you say, bringing out all of the dimensions of a thing. So that's, that's where they diverge. Um, I think, again, their convergence is, is much more uh, important, mostly because they're both committed to the idea that learning matters for faith. They're not distinct things that diverge. You have to somehow fight back together. And they're not this kind of thing where you go, I have my learning and my faith, and I try to fit them together. They really believe that learning is for faith yeah. and that, that you can trust understanding God's creation. You can tr trust understanding how God made humans and how they think to fit with what we can only receive by grace, like the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't reason to that, but once we know it, it fits our reason because we were designed for it. Yeah, so it's fair to say that they both have a clear sense that Athens has a lot to do with Jerusalem. Yes, absolutely. They are both what we would call integrationists. They, they absolutely believe that truth has its own integrity. Getting down to um, the core of, of Aquinas' thought, if you had to give a brief account of what is most important in Thomas, right, a summa of the summa, what would you say? Now, the hilarious thing, of course, about that is that Thomas himself had to do that. He got asked to write a shorter version of the Summa, uh, which, by the way, itself is never completed in his lifetime. The third part is actually much of it is constructed by his students from his notes. Um, and then there's the supplement beyond that. Uh, but he did write a Summa of the Summa uh, because someone said, I need a short version of this. And the funny thing is the Summa itself is supposed to be introductory work. So like a, maybe an introduction to master's level study. but. Uh, but no, so he's, um, uh, I, let me mention a couple sources for this because there's no way I'm going to do that justice quickly. Um, if someone wants to know the short version, uh, the first place I would start is with Ralph McInerney's book, A First Glance at Thomas Aquinas, Handbook for Peeping Thomists. Um, McInerney is a solid mid-century person, and the joke about Peeping Thomas is too good to skip. But he's a, he's a solid mid-century uh, American uh, Thomist who He's, he'll, he will give you the basic concept in a clear, no-nonsense way. Um, and then more recently, um, uh, Bernard McGinn uh, wrote for a uh, series, Slides of the Great Religious Books, published out of Princeton Press, uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia, a biography. And it's actually a, like, it sets in the historical setting how the Summa works as a document, how it's been received. And it's a tiny bit more scholarly, but still meant to be middle voice. So those two are really good. Basically, the we'll, thing put, say, we'll put links to those uh, oh, in the descriptions. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's just a couple recommends because uh, I, I think if you want, it, it's a very large ocean to try to get a, get a cup from. Um, the, the, the top three things I would hit is his idea in the Summa that sacra doctrina, as he calls it, rather than theology, is a science. So uh, sacred doctrine, sacred teaching, the teaching of sacred things, he says, is a science, meaning it has a definite content. It has a knowable, con communicable content that is received and organized by higher principles. And he calls that higher principle the science of God and the blessed, meaning God wants to be known and he definitely has made himself known to some people. So we can learn about that. And since we can learn about that, since we know there's something there to learn about, then we uh, can treat it as a science. We can treat it as something that's definitely noble. But then the method of that knowledge is very often by analogy. It's not by simple lists of univocal propositions. And this is the big difference from how I was taught all the way through college and even early grad school. True things were univocal propositions, meaning that if it was true when we said it about a human and we said the same thing about God, it's true in the same way. And that's a problem because the creator and the creature don't have the same relationship to what it means to be. 
right? The creator is where the being comes from and the creature is what has the being. So those kinds of relationships don't work the same way. So this idea that analogy is crucial, it's at the base of all of our understanding, all of our language use, um, is uh, I think the huge idea that you have to grasp if you're gonna work with Thomas. And then we see that idea in Dante. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no, that is where he is very domestic. (laughs) He does grasp this. Um, although weirdly, he puts Dante puts Thomas and his big opponent, uh, Seeger of Brabant, right next to each other like they're chums. And it's like, I find it very difficult to, to buy that. But Reconciliation of But of when it comes things. to this yeah. idea that everything is uh, drawn up together, that all of the particular meanings are part of the universal meaning, and that they were made to be that, um, yeah, Dante's got that vision in spades. Yeah. But then that, that, that idea, again, back to what we were talking about Plato and Augustine, I'm sorry, Augustine and Aquinas agreeing on, the integrity of understanding. The idea that everything that is true fits together with everything else that is true. It does so analogously in many cases. It, knows it may be different ways for different questions and different scopes, but it fits and it always all makes sense. We don't ever stick a, you know, slice our brain in half and there's this part that reasons about chemistry and this part that reasons about God. That can't happen. That that deranges human understanding. And Aquinas is possibly the grand champion of all time arguing against that idea of splitting up your understanding. He says, no, 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 it fits. Yes. And you can start from one pot or you can start from the other. It, it has to fit or you're doing it wrong. So would you say uh, Thomas is a, a compelling antidote to our, our modern tendency toward compartment, compartmentalization? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, that's part of what I think... I think that the hunger created, you see, you've, you've, you're really familiar with uh, Charles Taylor talking about the buffered self yes. and this kind of thing. And, and there's lots of people talking about this right now, which is great because it is probably the biggest problem of our time. Um, that I think that's what fuels a lot of the Thomistic revival we're seeing now. We have a lot of interest uh, kind of across the board mm-hmm. in studying Thomas. And uh, so um, among uh, the, the Dominicans, the United States have, or actually internationally, they have an organization called the Thomistic Institute that hosts talks and things like that on college campuses. And those are flir- currently flourishing. We're seeing more of them. There's um, all kinds of interest. And like I say, we're, ha- we're having a college conversation about Thomas right now. And that's not something that would necessarily have happened when I was a kid, right? And there's um, definitely a, a significant increase in interest in Thomas's thought. Um, and I think that's partly fueled by the sense that this buffered self, this compartmentalized existence, leaves an existential hole. And it certainly doesn't work spiritually. When you, when you try to have any kind of uh, faith life, it just craters yeah. if you leave it sitting where it can't touch most of what's really important in your daily life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's great because uh, a lot of times we, we uh, especially in, in the Christian liberal arts universities, mm-hmm. talk about the integration of faith and learning as if a thing, it's a thing that just arrived right. on the scene. Yeah, right? it's um, a big challenge. And, and in some sense, um, what you're saying is is go go ad fontes go go back to the sources and 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 Aquinas can can help us tackle this issue that we're we're to no I really agree I think if you go back and look at the history uh, the idea that we have to have these things in compartments is usually comes from a place that's somewhat hostile to Christian faith but in the 19th century uh, kind of across our Christian conversations we kind of for some reason adopted it on our side. Like what's gonna happen is we're gonna say, oh, well, I understand that 
industry has to do what industry has to do and the laboratory has to do what the laboratory has to do. But over here, we're going to have our faith and its integrity is going to be that it doesn't interact with those mm -hmm. things. And I, Thomas Aquinas would, I mean, I think he would muster an angelic army and come, you know, uh, take take over if, if if that was what God had in mind to to resist that because that is that's just not going to work. Well, in, in some ways, and that that anticipates my my next question. Uh, Pius X in Doctoris Angelicae declared that Thomas's work is essential for understanding the teachings of the Catholic Church. So, how does Thomism undergird Catholic belief still today, right? What is the role of Thomas in the life of today's Catholic believer? Okay, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, it, his, like any historical figure, his, uh, his currency kind of waxes and wanes from time to time. Um, yeah, Pius X, huge uh, emphasis on it. For after that uh, time, um, the manual to be used for the seminary preparation, the, they, do, they do philosophy and then theology in seminary preparation, the manual to be used was Thomas. And so everyone who wanted to be said that they were doing Catholic advanced study had to be in some measure a Thomist. Now the trick with that is that 19th century theology, again, across all camps that I'm familiar with, the 19th century is not the moment when our theology was most successful. It was kind of the moment that gave us a lot of the big challenges we're still wrestling with. And so Neo-Thomism, because it was trying to have that conversation and the Thomas conversation, there's actually a bunch of things that it does really well and a few things that it does not do so well. One of the things that it tended to do was to create kind of cut and dried linguistic results that didn't necessarily accurately reflect the tradition that Thomas was interacting with. I mean, there, we, it, it was just a little bit different. So it worked out really well and it's still very big, but what happened is that in reaction, almost reaction against that, we had in the 20th century renewed Augustinianism. So um, figures that uh, certainly Catholics really respect, and I think it earned a measure of respect across, across everyone, uh, like uh, Karl Wotiwa, so uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, and uh, Joseph Ratzinger uh, both identify much more as uh, Augustinians in their thinking than as, and so they actually renewed Augustinianism in the 20th century. Um, and the good thing is if you've got all of this Thomistic grid and you've got people bringing Augustine back over against that, they're basically doing what Thomas would want them to do. It works out quite well. Um, so that's been helpful. Um, the Ressourcement movement in the early 20th century, um, mostly French, uh, French Catholics, uh, but a, a bit expanded quite a bit. Going back at Fontes, going back trying to say, wait, what if we try to digest the whole tradition the way that we find it digested in someone like Thomas? What if we try to bring it all together rather than grab one moment and try to, you know, stick it in amber? <laughs> and so that movement has been very helpful. It initially also was a reaction against Neotomism that actually had some problems at first, but I think it's one of the most valuable things that happened. And presumably that has some pretty big implications for Catholic education. As Huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no. Ressourcement is probably the model that I would push uh, that, that uh, people, I mean, in any Christian education, actually, I would say um, don't necessarily emphasize the the great books the way that they've come to us in like the uh, Harvard Five Foot Shuffle books which I love and read through in my teens <laughs> as much as I could uh, but but more emphasize what are the sources of our thought like where did how did we get here like actually walk that back and think that out so that the community is reading 
its history and then comparing it to adjacent histories. I think that's a lot more valuable. Um, so yeah, so that race or small, I think, asks us to do that in a, in a, in a theologically serious way. Um, but then, like I said, the Thomistic revival that's current now, I think, is the other fruit of that. Um, so after these reactions, and then, of course, in the Catholic Church, inside baseball, right, the, uh, the, the debacle of the way that uh, Vatican II's uh, wonderful teaching, actually, was received and implemented, um, and all of the back and forth. We have so much politics about that. Um, <laughs> everyone's got politics, I guess. Yeah. Uh, for our sins. <laughs> Not the Baptist. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I can I say 30 odd years as a Baptist, I never saw any church politics. <laughs> no, but yeah, everyone has them. Like I say, for our sins, we have politics. But, um, but the, the Thomistic revival, I think, is valuable. And I think it has created a sort of an ecumenical interest in this uh, big common undergirding of our thought, this big thing we do share, which is this foundation in the belief that if God is the creator, and he is, and if this universe is the thing he created, and it is, there ought to be some relation between those things. And if we are the ones who are gifted with the ability to craft communicable understanding of that out of our experience of that creation, seems to me that's something we need to focus on. And Thomas Aquinas does a brilliant job, I think, of spreading that out before us in you know, exhausting detail. <laughs> you have uh, not too long ago uh, started an educational uh, institute, the Survey Institute, which is doing some uh, important and impressive work. So can you tell us a little bit about the Survey Institute? Sure. We're small. Our focus is on specifically the integration of the liberal arts and the practical arts um, in the Catholic tradition. And like anything Catholic, what that means is not just for people who are Catholic, but because that is the tradition that we have. Uh, and we think that we can share its fruit with everyone. But liberal arts and practical arts, right? The liberal arts being how do you think like a free person in a free society? How do you do that thing? And the practical arts being, how do you make a living as a free person in a free society? Um, and the integration of those has to happen. If you don't have both of those things, if you don't make how you make your living shaped by your ideas about how you live as a free person in a free society, that's not going to work. And by the way, if your definition of free doesn't fit how the creator created you, <laughs> your definition of free isn't going to work either. So that's the challenge. So we, yeah, we've, we had a conference uh, last year. We uh, are working on getting some speakers together. We've run seminars this summer. Uh, we've got some studies on the calendar. We're hoping to build a program of associates who will help carry on the work. Um, we're small. I mean, like anything like this, we're small. It's an idea that's kind of like a seed and we're just going to keep tilling it and well you don't till a seed you till a field but <laughs> pardon the metaphor but we're going to keep working it till it works and where can people go to learn more about that serviokc.org so s-e-r-v-i-o-k-c.org um for what it's worth survey uh is from the latin for we we servants or we slaves, because that should be our response as opposed to the famous uh, non serviam of uh, the, the deceiver. So, Wonderful. Thank you very much. This has been an enlightening and pleasant conversation. So, Peter Epps, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.